You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. This is part two of a two-part series looking into the use and abuse of temporary migrant workers in Australia. You can find the first part in which we hear from some workers themselves in our previous podcast. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Don't, don't ask you the date, no, Anne. Not Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. And uh, <laughs> hello, Kevin. How are you? And the date I reckon is the eighth today. You reckon? It could Probably be. The yeah, of I think it's so. eighth of April. April. And hello to Larry and Larissa, our yeah. lovely listeners. Now I've got to tell Larry yeah. and Larissa this. Yeah. What? <laughs> that I asked Kevin what he had been up to since I saw him last, and he started to tell me this story, and then he left me hanging. <laughs> So now I'm going to hear the story. I went to um, Strawberry Fields Music Festival. Right. It's it's kind of like a rite of passage for kids. Now I'm I'm generally old at festivals, <laughs> but either I'm getting older or they're getting younger. It's, Do you get much respect? Well, no, they're okay, they're okay, but you've got to make an effort. If you go to a festival as an old person, you can't be a passenger. You've got to be part of it, right? And I helped with the pack down because that's a good way to connect to the festival. Plus, I'm an old uh, an old techie in the rest of it. And they started me off in the uh, sorting trash. <laughs> <laughs> you started at the top. <laughs> That was okay, I don't mind, um, doing recycling and stuff. And everybody, like, they're really vibed and they've got good music playing and a really positive attitude, you know. Okay. Um, so the next day I'm pulling down lights and they uh, love me and they've invited me back to work on the next one they're going to pay me. So that's, that's good. Nicely done, <laughs> right. Kevin. So this, this is your life. This is all yeah. pretty long. But to get to the end of the story, right, mm. well, to bring us back to context. I do want to tell listeners that on this show... All roads lead to macroeconomics. One way or another we oh. are going to get to macro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we're driving to the festival with my mate Jaden, uh, and Jaden is the festival director for the Lockhart Music Festival that I keep on uh, raving on about. Mm. And he's very sensible, Jaden. He's far more sensible than I am. But I said, look, I can't give you a lift home. And he said, oh, well, how am I going to get home? And I said, look, we'll find somebody. There's a lot of cars driving back to Melbourne, and we'll find somebody. And I said, you could always hitch. And he said, you can't hitch. Hitching's illegal. And mm. I've gone, no, it's not. And he goes, <laughs> no, it is. I said, I used to hitch all the time. I said, hitching, hitching's just like, that's Australian. That's people helping each other out. So then I'm driving back to Melbourne um, and I pick up a hitchhiker. <laughs> you had to screech to a halt. No, no, I, you, you sort of pull over safely and yeah. then you wait and you reverse up if you can okay. so they don't have to run okay. too far. How did you figure he was hitching? Well, because he's walking on the verge and um, when he heard my car, he stuck his, his hand oh. out. So I pulled up and I picked up Darren, Darren who was coming down from Griffith and he's a fruit picker. <laughs> Yeah. So for any listeners who might not have been listening to our last couple of shows, we've been talking a lot about fruit pickers because they're exploited, underpaid. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a whole thing when COVID came out that all the unemployed should get off their lazy asses and go fruit picking. That's how I first got into this idea because, you know, the unemployed workers often get vilified in the media. We often get used as the punching bag, but I'd never heard us being told to go and pick fruit. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Even though they were saying that unemployed workers were too lazy to get off the couch, apparently thousands of Australians unemployed did go and pick fruit. So what you and I heard anecdotally from lots of different sources was that they were not making a living wage, let alone even sometimes a legal wage. Yeah, so we have heard from a couple of fruit pickers already, and yeah. that was in the previous show. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I picked up and then Darren. Kevin's wandering around the country picking up another fruit picker. <laughs> so Darren's travelling from Griffith to Shepparton. Mm-hmm. He's uh, born and bred uh, Australian. He was well tanned because he's a fruit picker. <laughs> but he's had a bit of a row with his girlfriend, and she took off to Shepparton, and he's chasing after her with his tail between his legs. <laughs> oh. go on, go on. I've got to go find my girl because I love her, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he was just the nicest guy. So I dropped him off somewhere in Shepparton and, and, um, and he went off. I hope he found her. And if you're Darren's girlfriend, but he, he's a good bloke. 
<laughs> well, we do know that a lot of Aussies do go and pick the fruit and veg. Yeah. Yeah, but they're being driven out of the industry by this whole other exploitation phenomenon. Now, Darren, who's mm-hmm. a good fruit picker, he said Griffith was terrible. They were paying $40 a crate there. He, he was doing a 10-hour day for like 120 bucks. you know. Um, <laughs> well, that's 12 the 12 bucks an hour. Well, that's about hour. average from what I've heard. And and that's crap. Like 120 bucks a day for a 10-hour day, that's just rubbish. Yeah. You know? Now... The fruit pickers are going on to the minimum wage of 25 bucks an hour, and that starts very soon. I heard mm-hmm. that, saw that just on the news recently, and you right. were way ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> I was. We had the scoop on that one. Okay, so workers go on to 25 bucks an hour, and they reckon that about 60% of the price of fruit is, is labour. Oh, um, I did not know that. That's uh, interesting. I, I heard that on the news. So that means mm. the price of fruit is going to go up, and people will say inflation, inflation. That's not inflation. No, it's that's, not. That's a correction. It's a price rise. That, that's a correction from years of low wages, of wages being driven into the ground. Fruit was artificially cheap, and now there's going to be an adjustment where you're paying the proper price for fruit. That includes the labour, which has been disrespected uh, mm. for so long. So now when you buy your fruit, you're going to be paying the proper price. So maybe you'll be a little bit more careful about the fruit that you buy. You won't buy excess and throw it out. Uh-huh. Uh, Kate, the fruit picker, said in our um, previous show, she said, treasure your food, Yeah, she said. That was her message for Australians. It wasn't stop exploiting me, it was treasure your food. Treasure your food, yeah. Don't be wasteful. Yeah. So it'll be a one-off price rise. So that means it won't be inflation because the price won't keep rising. The adjustment will be a one-off. Yeah. Um, if they do start abiding by this new law. And then hopefully the money will actually filter around through the economy anyway and so workers will be spending more, which will actually be a good thing all around. Yeah, so it's better. Like you lift your economy from the bottom. This trickle-down bullshit is just bullshit. So in a moment I'm thinking we might take a deep dive to explain just what is going on with this exploitation. Like what is it that's keeping these workers in these fields, including Darren working for $12 an hour for 10-hour days, just why? <laughs> like, how is this happening in modern day Australia? Right, yeah. And the other question that I had was, do we actually have no choice? Like, we have to use slaves to get our harvest in. Like, economically, is that what we need to be doing? So let's have a listen. Sounds like a, a very good idea. Exploitation in the industry wasn't the exception, it was the norm. In the horticultural sector, which is that part of agriculture that produces fruit, vegetables, flowers and nuts? It was routine. Shane Rolston, who is the National Organising Director of the AWU, the Australian Workers' Union. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, temporary migrant workers were about 11% of Australia's total workforce. Prior to the pandemic, Australia's horticultural workforce um, was a bit of a mix. So there's always a solid core of Australians who um, work in the sector and they normally make up between 20 to 27% of the industry. Then the the rest are basically um, predominantly migrant workers. What used to be backpackers before the pandemic, they used to make up about 60,000 thereabouts of the workforce in that sector. And then you've got a, a mix of other migrant visas like the seasonal worker program or the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, which are been renamed now to be called the PALM, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Program. And there's also uh, what we call a, um, a CD underbelly to the to the sector as well. There's a, a roundabout, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 undocumented workers. So their migrants who come over might be on a temporary visa or a visitor's visa. In some cases, students who come over and they've overstayed their visa and they don't have lawful work rights. So what they do is they work in the sector for cash in hand, and that normally sits at around somewhere between $8 and $15 an hour. But with that comes the risk of if you're not on the books and you have an injury or illness, then there's, there's no workers' compensation. There's no medical cover because you're an undocumented worker. You can't go to a public hospital. And agriculture, horticulture is consistently in the top two or three industries each year for fatalities and workplace injuries. So it's, um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice job if you can get it, but it's also a dangerous job and it's hard work. People die in the industry every year. Since there's been a shortage of backpackers during the pandemic, because back, most backpackers went home, as, as you would expect in a, in a crisis, but during that shortage, then the number of undocumented workers has gone up, but also the, the number of Australians working on farms has gone up as well, documented, so that's been a good thing. What you're just describing there is what I've heard described as a segmented workforce. So with your undocumented and your different kinds of visas and then your residents, you've got a workforce that's segmented 
And each of those segments are experiencing different kinds and different levels of exploitative um, behaviour by employers. Absolutely correct, Dan. So the, the Australians who traditionally work in the industry and still work in the industry, they'll do the, the, the higher paid jobs, the packing jobs. They'll often be families of, of farm owners and they normally get well looked after. They get paid for the hours they work and they're normally on the books and, and everything's above board. With the migrant workers, it's a, it varies greatly. Um, some of the seasonal workers from the Pacific Labor area also tend to get underpaid. Um, when they do get paid correctly, they tend to have those payments reduced through what they call um, costs for accommodation and travel and all that type of stuff, and they've got to pay back the price of their visa. So they end up taking home maybe $150 or $200 a week for a 60-hour week, which most people would think is completely unacceptable. So most fruit and veggie pickers or harvest trail workers will be on the casual rate. And $25 an hour, we'd like it to be more, but it's a fair guaranteed minimum rate. And there's nothing stopping workers from earning more in a piece rate system or a bonus type system that their employer can offer, just like any other industry does it. They have a minimum guaranteed hourly rate that people must be paid and they can have incentives on top. That's more than welcome. We just want to make sure they're paid a minimum of $25 an hour as a casual so they can actually put food on the table, roof over their head, and be able to live in some regional area in Australia and be able to contribute to the local community where they can spend some money at the supermarket or the pub. Of course. A lot of that money would go straight back into that regional economy. Yeah, and the government just doesn't get that. All their policies have continued to allow the sector to be, for want of a better word, systemically exploited for the workers And that just reduces money into those regional communities, those same regional communities that need the money the most. The use of temporary migrant workers in horticulture is emblematic of Australia's two-decade slide into becoming what's known as a guest worker nation. A guest worker state, as it's been defined in the research around migration policies around the world, is an immigration system that is based upon temporary visas. Dr Chris Wright, who is an Associate Professor in the Discipline of Work and Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School. He has a particular interest in immigration, labour market regulation and supply chains. Uh, Workers are engaged to work in a country with minimal prospect of them being able to create a permanent life for themselves in that country, and where their work rights and their social rights are restricted. So visas that tie their residency rights with one employer, so it limits their ability to move between employers in the way that a citizen or a permanent resident would be able to do if they're not happy with their job or if they're being mistreated or if they feel like their skills would be better um, utilised elsewhere. And... Another kind of restriction that's typically associated with guest worker state regimes is uh, migrant workers not having access to social security. So if they um, lose their employment, they can't access unemployment support. Uh, They might not be able to access subsidised public schooling, subsidised healthcare, subsidised childcare, things like that. Often though, when people do lose their jobs, if they're on a temporary visa, their right to live in the country goes with it. So a very coercive regime that can create major inequalities between migrant workers and citizens and permanent residents, but also um, by not providing that support to people and those rights to people who are coming to work here, it really discourages people potentially from creating a home and investing back into the place they're living in. So guest worker state is something that's been observed in countries in Western Europe, particularly in the post-war period and in some of the Gulf Coast countries. But it's something that we had largely managed to avoid quite consciously in Australia until relatively recently. Yeah, if you've gone back to the 1980s in Australia, lots of Australians partook in in the horticultural, agricultural sector and did lots of seasonal fruit picking and and that type of work. Shane Rolston of the Australian Workers' Union. They used to get paid correctly. That was the important thing. Mm -hmm. And they used to be respected at work. Back in the 1980s, there was a dodgy farmer or grower around the industry itself, their mates would call them out. You know, they would embarrass them and make mm. them stop. But slowly over time, the, the amount of dodgy operators became more and more till they became the majority. And right now, they are the majority. Australia's immigration track record historically is 
pretty patchy in that, you know, the white Australia policy existed for many, many decades. And the policies that were in place at the Federation were, you know, racist and highly exclusionary. The post-war period saw a shift towards a more expansive immigration system. But the white Australia policy remained in place until the 1970s. But from 1973 or thereabouts onwards, there was the the ushering into a system that continued to be based around permanent residency. So if you were in another country wanting to work in Australia, the only way you could really do that was on a permanent residency visa. From the 1970s onwards, there was the abandonment of wide Australia in favour of a more merit-based immigration selection or based around family connections or skills. The research from that period indicates that it was hard for employers to hold residency status or their visa conditions over migrant workers to underpay them. And also, you know, the, the industrial relations system meant that everyone was receiving uh, arbitrated wages, uh, which were basically collectively settled you know, through unions and the arbitration system. Unions had a really strong role in the enforcement of those wages, they had rights of entry into workplaces. Um, and that was a pretty effective system for ensuring that workers were receiving the wages that they were entitled to, and that extended to migrant workers. Under the current government, Australia really has embraced the guest worker state model. I think it's really unfortunate, given that there's a lot to suggest that a lot can and will go wrong with this sort of regime. So why do you look at 1996 as the turning point? Essentially because of um, some major changes that were ushered in in two areas. Uh, Firstly was immigration policy and the second was in industrial relations policy. So those two key changes, which were in different areas of policy and to some extent were independent of each other, worked together in a very um, unfortunate way to massively heighten the risks of mistreatment and underpayment for migrant workers, particularly those on temporary visas. So what keeps someone in a field for 10 hours a day working for as little as $3 an hour? The answer lies in what I call the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell. What are the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell? One, the visa requirements. Two, our industrial relations system. Three, the labour hire companies. Four, the unfair competition between farmers. Five, the supermarket duopoly. Six, the government's neoliberal obsession with fiscal surpluses. Seven, globalised extractive capitalism. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. Circle one of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell is the visas. The temporary migrant scheme is very different from the permanent migration program, which is determined by quotas or caps by government. With temporary migrant workers, employers are effectively deciding which people and how many people to bring into the country. The effect of tweaking the visa rules is quite dramatic. For example, at the end of 2021, as part of the UK Free Trade Agreement, the Australian Government removed the need for British backpackers to work for 88 days on Australian farms. And this could mean 10,000 fewer farm workers from the UK. So 996 is, is significant for two reasons. Dr Chris Wright. 1996 was the year that the Howard Liberal National Coalition government was elected. Firstly, we see the introduction of the first uh, major temporary visa, um, the temporary skilled visa, which used to be known as the 457. 
And that was the first of a series of changes that saw the significant expansion of temporary visas. With the introduction of that specific visa, the 457 visa, that was introduced on the back of a recommendation from a report that the Keating government commissioned in 1994-95, chaired by Neville Roach, and which had representation from the ACTU on that review. And so in recommending that visa, the, the Roach review was very careful, placed many caveats on, on what that visa would require for it to fulfil its intention, which was at the time to allow basically multinational companies to bring in managers and executives from their overseas operations. So thinking here about a, a large accounting firm, perhaps uh, wanting to bring in someone from its London or Singapore or you know, Tokyo office. And so the review said, okay, well, that scenario, there's a legitimate reason for that, for there to be a temporary visa rather than a permanent visa. But there's all these things that have to be done to ensure that that doesn't morph into an exploitative arrangement. And at the time, initially, those checks and balances were maintained. It wasn't until a series of later changes were made that some of those protections slipped away. And also, you know, there was a debate in the mid-2000s around the introduction of a low-skilled visa, especially for the agriculture sector. And that proposal, which was you know, brought to the Cabinet by the Immigration Minister at the time, Amanda Vanstone, was, was rejected. In some of the things we've written about this, we've quoted somewhat cheekily Peter Costello for saying, you know, Australia's not a guest worker state and hopefully never will be. <laughs> so um, a slightly more charitable to the Howard government for maintaining some of the checks and balances and not going full stream down the guest worker path, at least explicitly. More recent governments, particularly the Morrison slash Turnbull slash Abbott government, have done away with all those uh, warnings. Despite the amount of evidence, despite the research and the arguments that have been put forward in, in public forums and Senate committees and you know, that unions have made consistently for many decades, we've now seen the shift towards explicitly low-skilled visas like the new agricultural visa, which completely junk any of those protections. And I guess that's what we've seen in the horticulture sector is that prior to some of the policy changes that there were um, grey nomads, there were students, there were people who moved from region to region, you know, following the harvest trail. There still are some, but they've diminished because um, the visa policies have done such an effective job of actively encouraging migrant workers into the industry. See, I, I was walking around with the impression that I realise now is 20 years out of date, which is that it was the grey nomads and the backpackers having a holiday. And it's just so not the picture anymore. You know, they're just getting people in there to do their 88 days. A mate of mine, Tex, who's a fruit picker. The 88 days is for certain countries, if they want to get a second year visa, they have to do 88 days within their first year to get the second year visa. So 88, 88 days of work? Yes, yeah. um, on an on a orchard or outback or some, someplace rural to, to promote tourism in the outback. So it's got to be regional. They can't get 88 days work in town. It has to be out of town. Yeah, to my knowledge, yeah. You're just going to do 88 days, get ripped off and get out, yeah? Yeah, pretty much. And they think it's fine because these guys, because they're tourists, they must be from an inheritance family or something. Right. They don't realise that half of these kids have worked their, their, their butts off to get here for years. We've seen the shift in the working holiday visa, what was once, and it still is uh, in terms of the way that the language is used by the Department of Home Affairs, it's a cultural exchange visa first and foremost. But of course, we have seen a, a range of policy changes that have turned it into a work visa and a work visa that is essentially designed for work that's classified as low skilled and, and work in industries that have terrible track records in terms of how workers are treated. We've also got the Seasonal Workers Program, which has been in place for about 15 years or so, which has got some big problems attached to it as well. Um, a lot of people sponsored under this visa have died, but there's a lot more regulation attached to it in that there's greater obligations on employers in terms of providing pastoral care to provide at minimum award wages. Um, unions under the design of the scheme have a role in the induction process. Um, so. It's a visa with more protections than the working holiday visa. What is it about shifting to low-skilled that opens this avenue towards more exploitation? Work in horticulture or work in 
hospitality or in the care sector might be formally classified as low skill, but there are skills and capabilities that are required to do that work. It's just that they're not credentialed. Mm -hmm. The barriers to entry for workers are lower in those types of work in that you might not need a formal qualification. Um, Qualifications, they can allow workers to have a greater potentially bargaining power. There's a range of factors that contribute to workers' power. Most of those factors are collective. If you have skills or qualifications that are in high demand, it's generally going to be easier, generally speaking, for you to get decent conditions or at least to be able to walk away from an exploitative arrangement. The other thing is that work that's classified as lower skilled, like horticulture, like hospitality, tend to be non-unionised. We know that's a key factor why conditions in the, in the horticulture sector are so poor. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au. The second circle of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell is the industrial relations system. Australia's industrial relations policy has involved decades of attacks on trade union power. This decimated protections for all workers, including the especially vulnerable temporary migrant workers. So yes, the Howard government, they are largely responsible for the predicament that temporary migrant workers are in. Dr Chris Wright. The, the industrial relations changes were absolutely intentional. There's no doubt about that. That's because, you know, the Howard government were explicitly anti-union um, in no uncertain terms. Changes to the industrial relations system did lots of things, um, but key one is that unions' role in enforcing those standards, minimum labour standards, was was weakened or crippled, really. Um, the government created a new body, the Federal Ombudsman, which um, does perhaps a decent job in the context of the limited resources that it has, but it's clear that the enforcement of standards for all workers, but particularly for migrant workers, is much less effective. There's been a, a concerted and coordinated attack on, on unions since the 1990s, which has reduced unions' influence in the sector. Shane Rolston of the Australian Workers' Union. Governments have made it fairly difficult for us to do our job where we could normally go out and check paying conditions for everyone. We can't do that anymore. We can only check paying conditions for our members, so it's mm. difficult. And this current government, you know, they say they've increased the funding of the Fair Work Ombudsman. Well, they did last year, only after um, ripping the guts out of the Fair Work Ombudsman's funding for the successive seven years before that. You know, they restored some of it, so they can do bugger all over because they haven't got the resources. And that's mm. the way this government wants it. They want the industry to be unregulated and the race to the bottom. So are temporary workers allowed to join a union? Yeah, they are entitled to join a union, but I think join a union, there's a two problem. Sherry Huang, who now works at the Migrant Workers Centre here in Melbourne. First thing is for the people that come from the background probably doesn't have a unionism or there's no union movement happening. So they, they got no idea what is union whatsoever. So this is the first thing. And the second thing is the visa, because the visa probably attach restriction. For instance, like working harder than visa, they can only work six months for one employer. So they might moving from sector to sector. So they're a particularly hard group to organize then. Yeah. Language barrier, cultural barrier, but also the restriction that attach on the top of the visa category. It is a big challenge, but I think the union has been moving to, you know, trying so hard to uh, fix. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So, Kevin, that was Chris Wright describing what happened and how it happened back in 1996. Yeah. The intention, like as Chris was saying, was this idea that you would introduce a temporary migrant visa for skilled workers only. That was the genie that they let out of the bottle. And the chain that you put on the genie was to say, 
no, we're not going to use this for unskilled work. And then the Turnbull and the but Morrison governments just have unhooked those just chains. Gone, just gone, you beauty, you guys introduced this, the Labor Party introduced this, and we're just going to crack it right open and, right. and, and, and yeah. let it go. So that's know. how it takes decades for these things to unravel until you look up one day and go, hang on, we're using one million slaves in this country. Yeah. What is going on? Yeah. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. The third circle of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell is the labour hire companies. These companies recruit and manage the incoming streams of temporary migrant workers on behalf of the farmers. In part one of this two-part series, the temporary migrant workers we interviewed described their encounters with this unregulated parasitic industry. First thing is how you get the job. Sherry Huang. Pre-arrived Australia, I already contacted my friend and saying, do you know how I might be able to find a job or farm job or be able to... I'll do my ADA days and maybe in the future I might feel like to extending my stay. And then they say, oh yeah, there's a labor hire. So that's actually the very first time I heard the term labor hire. I was like, okay, what is labor hire? And it turns out it's someone that um, doing the job matching and then recruiting people to working in the farm industry. I'm speaking like from Taiwan uh, experiences. There's a labor hire agency operating overseas that based in Taiwan. So they're trying to recruiting people. In that case, they can generate some income. So they encourage you to apply for this visa and then come over here working under them. Of course, they don't want to say, oh, there's a poor working condition and blah, 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 slavery-like. No, they won't promote that. They will tell you that experience a different world. So it's like, oh, you can actually earn more here than back home. Often the employment relationships on farms are not um, straightforward. It's not simply an employer and an employee. Dr. Chris Wright. You'll have a worker who's engaged by a labour hire company who is then engaged by a farmer to deliver that worker. And part of the justification for that is that much of the um, fruit and vegetables are typically seasonal. So a farmer might only need a few workers for several months of the year. And all of a sudden, when it comes to harvest time, they'll need a couple of dozen or a couple of hundred. And so, you know, labour hire, those types of arrangements do have a role, but they're not regulated effectively. Because one day, I think it was the second week, then we went out to do the shopping. We got like seven or eight girls in the back. So he was driving, I was right next to him. And all of a sudden, he stopped. Like he was driving and all of a sudden he stopped. He said, can you drive? Do you want to drive? When I look at in the front, we got a police car. So police was like checking everybody or maybe doing a drug test or something. And I was like, um, are you okay? Why, 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 why couldn't you drive? And he say, um, I don't have drive license here. Mm. And then in the end, I realized he doesn't even have a visa here, legitimate visa in Australia. We highly rely on the labor hire because we don't have cars and we don't know where to get the food and then we know nothing about the work itself as well and then there's a language barrier too mm-hmm. so we will heavily rely on them also backpacker hostels you know, we're basically in some regions um, farmers complain that we can't get workers locally even in regions with high unemployment but with our research, we found examples of where um, it was effectively impossible to get into the industry unless it was done so via a backpacker hostel. Workers had to be staying in a hostel because that hostel would arrange the accommodation from the hostels to the farms. 
the regional areas which don't have the capacity to develop public transport networks, for example, because of the size and the scale of the places, often very difficult for workers to get out to the farms, which might be, you know, 10, 20, 30 kilometres away from the regional centre. To get work in the farms, they had to go through the backpacker hostel. And so we thought of it almost like a tunnel. You had like this exclusive channel whereby workers were transported. You know, there's no free market, free labor market out there. It was very actively um, managed by the companies who are involved in, in this apparatus. So the other really interesting thing that this showed up for me when it comes to macroeconomics, we always hear the economists, and you won't hear the mainstream orthodox economists say this, but you will hear the alternative economists say this. And they talk about how the government creates markets. And I never kind of really understood that because, of course, the orthodox economists will say everything's a free market and it just naturally appears if you let it run itself. Well, this is an example of how we've created a market in cheap labour. All that needed to happen was for the government to create this framework and that is done through these uh, laws around temporary visas and all they had to do is just create the possibility. They didn't have to actually say in legislation, can you please exploit 10,000 Malaysians this year? They just have to make the possibility that that will happen. Create the circumstances so it can. That's right. And inevitably it will because there's competition to get the business. And then what happens is you get this whole industry spring up, which is made of labour hire companies and hostels and backpackers and recruiters. And then you get this market that is selling and buying cheap labour. And so that's how a government can create a market. That's how they want to run their economy. And that's why you end up with a really unpleasant economy. Do you know what we should do? What should we do? We should rip it up and start again. Fades out of that was orange juice. We'd rip it up and start again. The fourth circle of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell is the unfair competition between farmers. The cost of labour is the largest cost area for fruit and vegetable growers. So this is where they try to cut costs. Using the visa laws, the government need only provide the possibility that an employer can exploit a worker to encourage bad actors and drive out the good growers. One analysis I've heard is that this exploitation that is so systemic and widespread of temporary migrant workers in horticulture and other sectors, that gets used to drive down wages and conditions for local workers. Do you see that as a fair analysis? That's just a fact, Sam. If you've got a um, twenty to 30,000 workers in your industry who are undocumented getting paid you know, roughly $10 an hour, That puts downward pressure on the good operators to pay minimum rates or lower. Shane Rolston. It's hard to compete against uh, dodgy operators, so that puts pressure on the good operators to try and reduce their labour costs. The AW doesn't believe that's a sustainable way to run an industry, and the government knows it's not sustainable. They just don't do anything about it. Any other industry like mining or, or manufacturing, you know, wages tend to go up with the production and profitability of the industry. You know, the Australian horticultural agricultural sector, it's more than tripled in the last couple of decades. And productivity, as in returns on production, have also increased significantly over the last few decades. You know, exports are at an all-time high. But um, the return to workers in that industry is at an all-time low. You know, if anything, they've gone backwards over the last 20 years. So that's not a sustainable industry in the long term. There's plenty of good farmers out there and plenty of good growers out there in the industry. But how can they compete against the bloke down the road who is underpaying their workers at half the price they're paying. They just can't compete. They go out of business and all that does is open up more opportunity for more dodgy employers to expand in the business. I think it's important to emphasise that not all employers out there exploit their workers and there are many who are not happy with the status quo. Dr Chris Wright. Part of our research was commissioned 
by a group of farmers. And that's a, a group of farmers who, who wanted to do the right thing, wanted to pay workers decent wages, but had challenges being undercut by the large number of uh, non-compliant competitors. The farmer, they very good looking for the vulnerable category of visa. Sherry Huang. So for start with, they're probably looking for backpackers to do the job, but they come and go. So they move to the next category, which is international students who may violating or breaching their visa requirement. And then when they run over this option, they move to undocumented, which the, the workers are in a country that doesn't have a work rights. So I think they the employers are very good with looking for these categories and then say, we'll move on to the next and move on to next. In that case, I can, you know, cutting down my cost. So I don't need to pay that legal minimum to the workers? That, that is the landscape. The landscape is that the, the norm is to not comply. Um, and so if you're a farmer who wants to pay your workers what they're legally entitled to, but you're in competition with uh, other farmers who are not complying and therefore getting a competitive advantage against you because their labour costs are less, then how do you survive? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's... Mm. A lot of these policies that I've mentioned around immigration and industrial relations have been implemented with the market invoked. You know, these policies will enable businesses to be more efficient and productive. But what they've actually ended up producing is an uneven playing field. Mm, interesting. You know, to have a free market operate efficiently, to have a free market operate in a way that produces more productivity, you need to ensure that there's compliance with the rules of the market, especially when it comes to wages and, and labour issues. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But... Don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au The fifth circle of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell is... The supermarket duopoly in Australia. At one point, the Coles-Woolworths duopoly commanded 90% of the market share. They're now down to about 65% of market share, and they still buy about two-thirds of the fruit and veg grown in Australia. The demand for exploitable labour is driven by the intense competition between farms to get business from the major supermarkets. This puts downward pressure on prices and downwards pressure on prices puts downward pressure on wages. Then on top of that, you've got supermarkets. Dr Chris Wright. Who are playing off their suppliers, in this case farmers, off against one another. In our research, we were told by many farmers about the contracts with the supermarkets that become a lot less favourable. They may have gone from having a, contracts that are effectively ongoing and then all of a sudden... The supermarket comes in and says, okay, we're shifting this to a, to a 12-month contract. And by the way, you've got to provide at a much lower cost than you have been. And this creates massive problems for farmers and, and they're the one with less power in that relationship. So supermarkets driving down prices has contributed to this problem because farmers all of a sudden have to operate at much smaller margins and they need to find some way to do this. And in the absence of unions saying, well, you better make sure that you're not underpaying your workers, those Outcomes happen more easily. And especially when you have labour hire companies who say, look, don't worry about your labour problem. Just outsource it to us and we'll deal with it for you. Some of the stress that these orchardists are receiving is actually because of Woolworths. Tex, who's a fruit picker. I've seen 100 tonnes of apples just thrown away because they were slightly small. 
I should explain to uh, our listeners that uh, Tex and I go back, we used to work together doing events. And one of the events that I did for 10 years was the Coles Executive Forum. You'd have a room full of, I don't know, 100 or so department heads. uh, And they'd sit there talking about how they're going to screw their suppliers a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's just a long-term plan, and they just put the vice grips on just tighter and tighter. Although some of the orchardists aren't good people, they don't deserve to be ripped off as well. So it's just, it's like a chain of... Well, it flows down the flows line, flows down the it? line. Yeah. But the treatment gets worse and worse until it's, it's almost like a slave labour in some people, yeah. whereas Woolworths should know better. Look, to, to, to give um, some people a, a shout-out... Shane Rolston of the Australian Workers' Union. There's some major retailers who we're working with around what we call supply chain alliances where we're putting in place some checks and balances to make sure produce that goes to those major retailers has been picked by people who get paid the award rate or better, has been picked by people who have got accommodation which is safe, and and has been picked by people who are not exploited. So we're doing some good work, and some of the major retailers, um, like Coles, are trying to do the right thing in this area because the government's refused to step up for the last Mm -hmm. decade. Mm -hmm. So that's good to hear uh, so that... (laughs) We don't have to like turn our our packet of grapes over and go, who was this picked by? We can walk into a supermarket knowing there were fair labour conditions behind that produce getting onto the shelves. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd say that, yeah, you, you can never be 100% guaranteed, but if, you, if you're buying from one of the two major retailers, there's a pretty reasonable chance that there are systems in place to ensure that those workers have been treated, you know, reasonably fairly. Um, you buy from other places and the guarantees are probably not there at present. And we're working on that. You know, we, we want to make sure that everyone in the industry, including all the retailers, take some responsibility to ensure that people are not, not treated like slaves in the industry. Unfortunately, you know, there's been studies done of this. The average consumer, they will go for the lowest priced good most often. And um, the supermarkets are contributing to this, but I think that consumers are also complicit in this as well. Even if inadvertently. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. The sixth circle of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell are surprisingly federal government surpluses. Running government surpluses when we don't need them takes money out of the economy. And that constrains spending by households. And that puts pressure on supermarkets and their supply chains to lower prices. Macroeconomists like Bill Mitchell and Leith Van Onselen have pointed out that to remain viable in such a competitive world, horticultural farmers must take one of two options. They can either take the ethical, innovative, high productivity, high wage option, or they can take the unethical labor exploitation option. Using the visas to ensure a cheap supply of labor encourages the exploitation option. Farmers who are having trouble making a profit get stuck in the mindset of cutting costs by putting pressure on workers rather than increasing productivity through innovation. We did encounter in our research some growers, those who are not on the harvest trail. In other words, they were not on the pathway that uh, working holiday makers typically tread in the more, I guess, the more touristy parts of the country, some of which coexist with nice farming regions as well. But those farmers who weren't on that trail that were more inland or they weren't on the harvest trail and who didn't have the access to that supply of backpacker labour that might work less than what they're legally entitled to. But those farmers had to think a bit harder about how they got their labour and how they used their labour as well, how they managed their labour. In one instance, farmers were recruiting workers who were citizens and permanent residents. They were employing them directly, not through a labour hire company. They were employing them on permanent contracts, not on casual contracts. They were giving them opportunities to train that would lead to better opportunities for them. It's really encouraging to hear that there is an alternative model that is actually working in Australia. Yeah, and those farmers said this is a really productive way of managing our workforce. So there's kind of a curse, uh, it seems to me, associated with this access to workers who are, by virtue of their visa conditions, are, are more susceptible to underpayment and mistreatment. 
because it, it basically it, it does not in any way encourage employers to look for more productive ways to run their businesses. And that's something we've consistently said in our research is that these are not the sort of jobs that are going to lead to a more productive economy. They're going to embed a low wage, low skilled, low productivity model that, that it's not going to benefit workers, certainly. It's not going to benefit those farmers either, and it's not going to benefit the national economy. So why are we going down this road? This doesn't make any economic sense to me. And um, it's just a lose, lose, lose situation ultimately, I think. What is the effect on working conditions as you see the smaller farms disappearing or being gobbled up by the bigger agricultural businesses? Well, the bigger businesses tend to um, use technology a whole lot more and they'll have more advanced systems in place, some people would argue better. So they'll have the money to outlay to have the equipment and the systems and they'll get returned for that. And um, that really reduces their reliance on, on labour although they'll still always have some reliance on labour. You know, there's 320 or 1,000 Australians working in the agricultural horticultural sector year in, year out. And that figure will continue to stay reasonably stable, even with advances in technology. But it is very competitive on the small to medium-sized, you know, family farms. But that's no excuse for family farms to outsource their responsibility to dodgy labour hire companies who come in and underpay people if they pay them at all to remain competitive. Um, those farms have got to look at their operations and see what crops are going to give them a better return and where they can make money. And the farm groups who um, have synergies of scale, they have the equipment, they can share it between farms. The equipment can follow the harvest trail from one farm to the other. You know, and they have the pickers who are well-trained and pretty experienced and they, they get better proficiency out of them because of their experience. The seventh circle of the seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell is global capitalism. As British economist Guy Standing notes, the use of migrant workers to expand a precarious working class is a global phenomenon. He calls migrant workers the light infantry of global capitalism. And he says the process is systematic, not accidental. If we're thinking globally, do you have any sense that Australia is effectively extracting the productive labour out of another country without bearing any of the costs of maintaining that labour? Uh, that, that is a tricky question because, um, you know, like the Philippines, people of Philippine origin account for a relatively high proportion of nurses and other health professionals internationally. Um, but from what I understand, their, their education system factors that in, that they will deliberately oversupply skills because they know that many workers are going to be, and in some respects, encouraged to go abroad and then via remittances, those the country will recoup some of that investment. But it's a complicated story and I know there are many critical perspectives on this. The government's now talking about a new ag visa. And I did read one commentator, uh, Richard Curtin, who is with the ANU Development Policy Centre. He was writing about this uh, reconstructing the visas which govern the conditions which temporary workers are living in in Australia. There's rushed and politically driven and he described it as a recipe for disaster and potentially will go down as one of Australia's worst public policy debacles ever. So I was wondering, Shane, what the concern might be here. Like, what could possibly go wrong? I think he's, he's nailed a few of them. So the government's proposed agricultural visa, which apparently won't just apply to agriculture, will apply to a whole lot of other industries as well. That has less safeguards than their current wow. migrant work visas. So if you're an employer in the farming or, the, or agricultural horticultural sector and you have a choice between bringing somebody over on a skilled visa or as part of the um, Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme where there are protections where you have to pay award minimum rates and you have to ensure that workers are given reasonable conditions to work in and safe conditions, if you have that as one option and the other option is to employ somebody on an agricultural visa which has less protections, less costs, less overheads, less guarantees for workers, of course, as a farmer, you're going to choose the cheaper option. And it's cheaper because it's the worst option. If the government had gone out of its way to create a visa which would see the sector increase the rate of exploitation, 
and drive it closer to um, broad-based slavery, this would be the visa they would have adopted. It is irresponsible for the government to introduce it. The trial has got some merit in the fact that we should be able to identify issues, but the trial is being done by what we call approved employers. They're employers who work in the Pacific Labor Scheme. They're required to do the right thing. They're people of good character and they're people who try and look after their workers. But after the trial, then the scheme will be open up to anyone. So you don't have to be a good character. You don't have to do the right thing. You don't have to ensure guaranteed minimum hourly rates. And then in two years' time, we'll be doing the same interview and trying to understand how we could have possibly got here. How could we possibly have done this? Yeah, it beggars belief that this government could go down this path, but they haven't. It just shows that the government is dog-whistling to a part of the industry which they shouldn't be supporting. They should be supporting the good farmers and the good growers who are trying to survive competing against these dodgy operators. After many years of lobbying, lobbying from some of the big industry groups has finally resulted in the government caving in. And so it has very few of the protections that the seasonal workers program has. It will enable employers to recruit from a wider range of countries, including critically from lower wage countries or countries where GDP and uh, and average incomes are much lower, which is important to mention because workers from lower income countries are generally more susceptible to mistreatment. And it's the type of scheme that exists in other countries that have similar and perhaps worse problems of mistreatment of migrant workers in their farm sectors. It's a policy model that has no track record of success anywhere. And so for Australia to be going down this path is very unfortunate and goes against a mountain of research and the calls of many, many voices out there. The thing is, we know what's gone on with our temporary migrant workforce and we know how to fix it. The government simply needs to use its fiscal capacity to ensure that all local workers have a job and the government should use its regulatory capacity to ensure that we are not creating conditions of worker exploitation. So, short of returning to a system of permanent migration, details of this big picture include enforce compliance with labour laws, enforce the new minimum wage, introduce a national labour hire registration scheme, remove right-to-entry barriers for trade unions, support networks of unions, legal centres and migrant representative groups to ensure a consistent supply of labour from reputable sources, increase funding to the under-resourced Fair Work Ombudsman and the Fair Work Commission, put a firewall between the Fair Work Ombudsman and the Department of Home Affairs which has the power to deport workers, continue the pressure on supermarkets to clean up their supply chains, monitor the cost and standard of accommodation for horticultural workers and offer free departure training and on-the-shop training for migrant workers themselves. We want it to be an industry we're proud of again. You know, we should be proud of our agricultural horticultural industry. It should pay decent wages and people should want to work in it. We want to get back to an industry where good employers are, again, the norm and rogue employers and dodgy operators are in the minority. That's where we want it to be. Is there anything more you'd like to say about uh, solutions that you could see that would enable a thriving industry uh, with good, decent jobs? So most farms aren't in the centre of a regional community. You know, if you go to Mildura, there are a few farms within walking distance of the town centre, but most farms are a number of kilometres out of the town centre. So the government could actually run some pilots and tests on some type of transport arrangement to get people from their, their accommodation in those regional towns out to the farms. It's not rocket science. They could subsidise that transport. It's a win-win situation or it's a win for the farms, particularly the small to medium-sized farms. It's a win for the workers in regards that they've, they've got regular transport to get out to their farm. You know, and it's a win for the local community. They have more money to be spent in their, in their local community by more workers. It, I just don't know why the government doesn't do this simple stuff. Same as the accommodation. You know, the accommodation prices in some regional areas during picking season is the equivalent of the Melbourne or, or Sydney CBD. Mm. You know, so it's cost prohibitive. The federal government will work with local government and state governments to make sure that towns have suitable and safe accommodation for harvest workers, even if it's only for three or four months of the year. You know, places which are safe, have toilets, have showers, have running water, have some type of cooling and some type of heating. One of the, the driving motivations for this show is that we look at a school of economic thought known as modern monetary theory. And what that tells us is that the federal government can never run out of Australian dollars. So if there is a need to spend, they can spend the money. So 
improving transport in regional areas temporarily or throughout the year, it just seems to me that it would be perfectly financially doable and it just needs the political will to see it happen. Absolutely. And, you know, the federal government spends a whole lot more money in other places where it gets absolutely no return for the dollar. There's plenty of opportunity to spend a little bit of money in, in regional Australia and get great bang for your buck. Industries mm. have been telling the government how they can encourage more young Australians who are unemployed to get out there, and so is the union. This government's simply refused to listen to people who actually know. You know, incentives helpful, getting suitable accommodation would be more helpful, getting reliable transport would be more helpful, and and getting rid of the waiting period after they've finished work to be able to reaccess those those unemployment benefits, that would also be helpful. Not rocket science, they just don't listen. But what we're looking for is what to do. So that's why our next campaign will be targeting the permanent as a pathway. Yeah, you need to give people a permanent uh, a pathway for the permanent residency. Yeah, Australia is a nation of immigrants post-invasion. That's that's become a defining part of our national identity, especially post World War Two. And that model that operated from the 70s to the 1990s, it seemed to be a very successful one. Migrant workers who came to Australia, they had equal treatment and a system that enforced that equality. And that was a key reason for the success of Australia's use of immigration policy for, for nation building. And you know, one of the things that led me to that conclusion is the contrast with what was happening in countries that went down the guest worker state model, like Germany, for example, at that time, brought workers in temporarily, limited their rights. And that contributed to inequalities between migrant workers and citizens, and that contributed to uh, social fragmentation. And this was something that played out in other European countries as well. By contrast, Australia and Canada, New Zealand, were able to welcome migrants into their workplaces, and into their communities, into their countries much more successfully. And just looking at public opinion measures, public attitudes towards uh, immigration are much more positive than in European countries that use the guest worker state model. Look at the way that Brexit has played out and the way that immigration played into that so centrally. And the discourse around migrant workers taking jobs and driving down wages was central to that. Mm. So any system, though, of inequality in a labour market is bad for social cohesion. Mm. The contrast between countries that have built immigration systems around equality and around inclusion, like Australia did for that 25-year period prior to 1996, and those that don't is clear. Mm Mm-hmm. For me, the most unfortunate thing about the system that we've ended up in is that we had a system that was working perfectly well beforehand and we've walked away from it, despite all the historical and international evidence suggesting that that system was a best practice one. Chris, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts on this. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. The Australian Workers' Union has been in the agricultural horticultural sector for over 135 years. You know, we've seen good times and bad times and we are confident with good people trying to do good things, we'll change the industry and bring it back to where it was, where it's an industry we'll all be proud of and everyone will want to work on it, including young Australians. Well, thanks very much for your time, Shane. Thanks, Anne. What these seven circles of temporary migrant worker hell add up to is a situation in which Australia has moved towards a guest worker system If creating a guest worker state is what passes for labour force management by successive governments, perhaps it is not surprising that their next best idea has been to rewrite the visas to accelerate our return to the importation and exploitation of temporary migrant labour. This degeneration into a guest worker state seems like one of many shifts that have eroded the social contract in Australia over recent decades. I'm thinking of other legacies of the Howard Liberal government years. We've got a dysfunctional privatised employment services industry, a dysfunctional privatised vocational education sector, corporatised universities, dysfunctional approaches to First Nations people, inhumane aged care services, inhumane refugee detention, inhumane privatised prisons, a predatory commercial banking system, a public housing crisis, accelerated species extinction, and also not dealing with climate crisis. 
you name it. This is what bad economic management looks like. heard of this thing called a guest worker state or a guest worker nation? No, but I fully understand what it means as soon as you say it. You yes. go, okay. I was so glad to talk to Chris about it because that finally put a name to this thing that I've been seeing where I think a lot of people now are feeling like there is something very, very wrong in the underbelly of Australia's workforce. Think about what you're doing, right, when you're going down this track of having temporary workers. doesn't sound all that bad, but you're saying to someone... Well, we're going to accept the fruits of your labour. So come in here. We'll make you work as hard as we can squeeze you. But we're not going to look after any of your other human needs. So we're not going to give you any cradle to grave support. There's going to be no education, no training. There's going to be no health care. Look what happened during COVID. Like yeah. During COVID, they totally abandoned these people that they couldn't afford to go they home. Couldn't they couldn't afford, afford to the airfare. It's right. just stranded here. There's absolutely no duty of Couch care surfing and, and bin diving, mm-hmm. you know? It no. just makes no sense to go down this exploitation route, unless you're a neoliberal. (laughs) Exactly. I was about to say, unless you base your model on the um, economic rational man who's who's trying to maximise his position by minimising others. Yeah. It is a terrible way to run your economy. And in fact, it explained to me why I would end up in these stalemate debates with people where people would say, migration is great for the country and it helps diversity and it helps productivity and studies show this and studies show that. And then I would be thinking, well, hang on, these migrants are also driving down wages and conditions. And I realise, oh, when you're having that debate with someone, you need to figure out if you're talking about permanent migration or temporary migration. And it's the temporary part that's the problem. Yeah, that's replicated in the in the FIFO workers, the fly in, fly out. You should be trying to build community. That's a great analogy. Hey, now we've got to go real quick. See you, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having the pleasure, that's great. Yeah, as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got a multiplier. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.